Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's return this morning to our text that has been our text these Sunday mornings in December, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, title of the message today, Everlasting Father. And we're studying through those four titles here in Isaiah chapter 9 of the coming Christ. I'm going to read verses 6 and 7 in a moment. While you're turning there, it gives me the opportunity to thank Dr. Michael Wright for his message last Sunday on Christ as our mighty God. He is the wonderful counselor we saw The word wonderful really means miraculous. He was miraculous in his conception and birth, in his life, in his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension, and now in his intercession. And he is mighty to save, the scripture says. But this morning, we see a third title, and that is, he's the everlasting father. Let's read our text, Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of His government or in peace. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Now I clearly recall signing up for an art class before my freshman year of high school. I did not enroll because of some secret love for the ancient masters. Truthfully, I needed an elective, and Art 1 seemed like an easy A. Well, I do not remember whether or not I got my A. I do remember, though, some things that Mr. Reeves taught us in Art 1. First thing he taught us was the concept of perspective, that things appear different to the human eye depending on your perspective. He taught us the worm's eye view, where you get down on the floor and look up at what you're drawing, and the bird's eye view, where you stand above and look down. He he taught us that when you're drawing a road on a piece of paper, it grows more narrow the deeper it goes into the horizon. And even today, many years later, as I'm traveling in a car, particularly out west in the desert, I remember those lessons. I think how the dotted lines on the highway are passing almost like a picket fence, but in the distance, the mountains barely appear to be moving. It's all because of the concept of perspective. And the idea of perspective is an important one as we think about our understanding of the Old Testament prophets, of which Isaiah, of course, was one. When the Old Testament prophets wrote of the coming Messiah, their only perspective was that of His first coming. From their point of view, it was His only coming. So they wrote of His exaltation and of His suffering from one perspective and one event. They were unaware that God's eternal plan of redemption would have two advents. The first, Messiah would come humbly as a gentle lamb. He would suffer and die in the place of sinners, ascend to glory, and there await for His bride, the church. But for those living in the New Testament era, that, that truth that there are two advents seems obvious, but we have the benefit of the New Testament. Have you ever looked at a mountain in the distance, but as you get closer you realize it's actually two mountains, separated by a great 
Valley. That's really the New Testament perspective of prophecy. God's plan of redemption includes two comings separated by this valley that we now call the church age. We're living in that valley awaiting the second advent. Paul called this truth mysterion in the Greek, a mystery, something that has been hidden in the past but is now readily available and clearly revealed. Now I said last time we were together that as believers we live in this great tension between the already and the not yet. And I really want to talk about that this morning. The fact that Jesus has been born of a virgin, He lived a perfect life and died an atoning death. Yet clearly, as we read verses 6 and 7, He has not established His government on earth. There is not a reign of righteousness unless you have not read the newspaper in the last year or two, or you've not watched any of the evening news broadcasts, you know righteousness and peace are not the order of the day on earth as was predicted. And so it's the already and the not yet. We await His second coming when He will, according to Scripture, establish His reign in Israel during His millennial kingdom. Psalm 72, 11. Turn there quickly, if you will. It's another messianic prophecy a psalm of Solomon, and speaking of this promised coming king, Psalm 72, 5, Solomon writes, Let them fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth in his days. May the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May He also rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before Him, and His enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow down before Him. All nations serve Him. That has not happened yet. But Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 indicate that it certainly will. And I say all of that to prepare us for the next title here in Isaiah 9-6, Everlasting Father. As we think of the Lord in terms of Everlasting Father, I want to establish three points in our hearts and minds. Number one, the eternal second person of the Trinity. Number two, the fatherliness of the Savior. And finally, the joy of a fulfilled prophecy. Let's look at those in the order that I said them. First of all, the eternal second person of the Trinity. Now when you and I think about eternity... We often do so incorrectly. That is, we place a fixed point in time and say eternity is everything that happens from now on. That is, geometrically, it would be a ray with a point and an indefinite line going in one direction. By the way, I do remember I did not get an A in geometry. But the truth is, when the Bible speaks of Christ's eternality, it's not a ray, but it's a line. There's no fixed point. It has no beginning and it has no end. It extends to the past and to the future indefinitely. We sometimes, as Christians, get confused about the nature of Jesus, even at Christmas time, because we rightly say that Jesus was born to Mary. And in our minds, we think of life beginning at birth or even better, at conception. But the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, did not have His beginning in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. 
Because what is true of any member of the Trinity is also true of the other two. That is, if God the Father is eternal in His attribute, and He is, God the Spirit is eternal, so is the second person of the Trinity. Paul confirms this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, "...have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." That summarizes the Christian doctrine of the Incarnation. That God literally left the glories of heaven in the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, and He took on voluntarily human flesh. And in that flesh He existed as altogether God, yet altogether man. One of the great heresies, one of the first heresies to threaten the church in its infancy was that of Docetism. And the Docetists denied the doctrine of the Incarnation. The fact that the second person of the Trinity in fact, took on human flesh. In fact, one of the branches of the Docetists contended that Jesus was just a man, and that at His baptism the Holy Spirit indwelled Him, and left Him shortly before His death, but He was not God in the flesh. This, of course, is heresy. And, of course, it's in direct conflict with the clear teaching of the Bible. John chapter 1, verse 1, "...in the beginning was the Word." That is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. John contends that Jesus is God. That it was through the agency of Christ that everything that's ever been created was created. Well, Jesus did not deny that. In fact, just seven chapters later in John chapter 8, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, it did not escape the notice of the Pharisees that Jesus was claiming to be eternal. That's why they wanted to kill Him. Paul confirmed it. Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. John, in his Revelation vision, hears Jesus say this, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. There is no wavering. There is uh, no stuttering. Jesus says, I am God, therefore He is eternal. And here in Isaiah 9, our text this morning, the Old Testament prophet confirms that very truth. When inspired by the Holy Spirit, he refers to Christ as everlasting. Now remember, the coming of Messiah is the fulfillment of the covenant promise God made with King David that there would be an everlasting king from his lineage. That theme is throughout the book of Isaiah. In fact, just turn over a couple of pages in your Bible, you'll come to Isaiah chapter 11, a very famous messianic passage, prophecy. Isaiah writes this, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Well, Jesse is David's father. And a branch from its roots will bear fruit. That is, there's coming one from the ancestry of David, a descendant of David, who will be the Messiah. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. 
He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt around his loins, and faithfulness the belt around his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like an ox, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not be heard or destroyed in the hall of the holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, that's the Messiah, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious." Now in that chapter we see that tension that we live in, the already and the not yet. The Messiah in fact did come supernaturally, born of a virgin, but we have to admit he did not establish that worldwide kingdom of peace. That's what his disciples were hoping for. That they were often saying to him, Lord is it at this time? That the kingdom's going to come, even when he was about to ascend into heaven. That's the last thing they asked him. Is it now? They didn't understand, as the prophets didn't understand, that we have this valley between the two advents of Christ. The already and the not yet. John chapter 3 verse 17. Jesus declared that in his first coming he was not coming with that rod of iron, that rod of judgment John 3.16, you know it, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. But do you remember the very next verse, verse 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but that through Him the world might be saved. That is in His first advent Jesus didn't come to rule and reign. He came as a suffering servant. He came humbly. Do you remember how He entered the city of Jerusalem? Riding the foal of a donkey. The, the, the meanest and meekest of, of all animals. The already and the not yet. Now the second thing we see is not only the eternality of the second person of the Trinity, but the fatherliness of the Savior. He is the eternal Father. Some Christians find it strange to speak of Jesus as Father. There is another heresy that's still around today called modalism. It denies the distinctive nature of the three members of the Trinity. They would say that God is one. He can exist as Spirit, as the Son, or as the Father, but only one at a time. They deny the Trinity and the traditional teaching of it. And again, that is heresy. Isaiah is not here, though, speaking of the doctrine of the Trinity when he calls the coming Christ an eternal Father. He's speaking of His character of His actions towards those He loves. And would you agree with me that Jesus certainly is fatherly to us? In what sense is the Lord Jesus fatherly? Well, I've thought of four ways, and you probably could add a dozen more. First of all, He is compassionate. Every good father is compassionate towards his children. Psalm 103, 13, just as a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. What does it mean to have compassion on your children when they're sick, 
you're moved by that. You do everything in your power to make them better. You pray for them. You would substitute your pain for theirs if it were possible. You're compassionate. In fact, when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees to show the great love of His Father, He says, you being evil know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more so your Heavenly Father. He's compassionate. He's, he's a provider. If there's anything that describes a good father as he's a provider. The Bible says if a man won't provide for his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever. Provide for their needs. Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He's a provider. Thirdly, he, He's an intercessor. He intercedes on our behalf. To intercede means to stand between. A good father puts himself between his children in harm's way. This is what Jesus does, Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, whoever intercedes for us. He is fatherly in his intercession. And then fourthly, he's a protector. In fact, if you want to summarize the job description of a father, he is a provider and he is a protector. Jesus is our protector. John 17, 12, speaking, praying to his heavenly father, he says, while I was with them, speaking of his disciples, I was keeping them in your name. That you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished except the son of perdition, that's Judas, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. That is, all that the Father gave him, he protected, he kept them. Paul says, He that began a good work in you will complete it. Your salvation is as secure as Christ's ability to keep you saved. He is our protector. In fact, uh, he even protects us from our enemy. You realize we have an enemy, right? And when David Johnson talks about the Chinese government trying to shut down his church, understand that what's behind all of that is our true enemy, who is Satan. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, For the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. He is our protector. So I think just by those four things you, you can see that Jesus is fatherly to us. We could certainly think of many more ways in which He's Father. That's all Isaiah was saying. He is eternal, that He always has existed and always will exist, and He is fatherly to those that He loves. Now thirdly and finally, the joy of fulfilled prophecy. Now this last point is uh, just a little bit extra. Sometimes at Christmas time we, we give a little more generously. Well, your pastor's going to give you a little extra today and we'll charge you for it, okay? This uh, third point, the joy of fulfilled prophecy. Just a reminder, my prayer for every member of this church this Christmas season is that we won't miss the joy of fulfilled prophecy. Remember, we're living in this tension between what has already been fulfilled and what is yet to be fulfilled. So as you gather with your family or in your living room around your hearth, this Christmas season. Will you do me the favor and celebrate the already? 
Now think about some of the prophecies that have already been fulfilled. Jesus was born of a virgin. Just as the Bible predicted 800 years before the fact. He was born in the little village of Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephratah. That's exactly where the prophet said he would be born. He entered on the colt of a donkey, just as was predicted. He was despised and rejected of men, just as Isaiah predicted, Isaiah 53. He was pierced through on the cross for our transgressions, and by his stripes we're healed. All of that was predicted by the Old Testament prophets. So celebrate that. The Bible is true and trustworthy. Everything that is necessary to happen for you to be made right with the Holy God has already been accomplished. There is nothing lacking. But what is lacking is the ultimate fulfillment of His glory, and that comes at His second coming. So just as you celebrate with your family what has already happened, you can also go ahead and be celebrating with joy what's about to happen. Because the Bible says all of the promises of God are yes and amen. Let me tell you what that means. Every prophecy in the Bible is in one or two categories. It has been fulfilled or it's about to be fulfilled. Those are the only two possibilities. All the promises of God are yes and amen. They are true and trustworthy. Specifically, we're talking about His second advent, His second coming. The first time He came as a suffering servant riding the colt of a donkey. When He comes again, it's going to be a different story. You say, Pastor, how do you know? Well, because we were given a great gift. One of the greatest gifts I think we've ever received is the book of Revelation. Let's turn there. Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, you know the apostle that Jesus loved, John, was given this incredible privilege that he was transported somehow supernaturally into the very presence of God, the throne room of heaven. And it was revealed to him how this world was going to come to an end. For our benefit, he was told down to write what he saw. This is what he writes in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. A little different mode of transportation this time. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and rages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our Jesus. That is the eternal second person of the Trinity. And when the prophets saw it from their perspective, all they could see is one event. Those of us living in that valley between the two advents know that Yes, He has come the first time as the Savior of the world. But He will come again soon as the judge of all mankind. And when He comes, He will establish peace over all the earth. And He will reign from sea to sea 
and he will make everything right that was made wrong because of sin's entrance into the world. You can celebrate that this Christmas with your family. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. What a joy it is at Christmas time to think of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that were completed in the miraculous conception, birth, life, death, and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. But Lord, we are pilgrims and wanderers and strangers in this land, and we long for the second advent when Jesus comes in power, when he comes to establish peace and justice in a world that lacks those two things. Father, we don't know when that day will be. We pray it would be in our lifetime. But if not, Lord, we, we don't worry because you've told us that to be absent from this body is to be present with you at one day when he comes. Those who have died are going to be resurrected, be given brand new bodies. So, so we don't have to fear. Whether we live or whether we're gone, when Jesus comes, Lord, we just want him to come quickly. That is our prayer this Christmas season. Lord, I thank you for every believer here. I pray you'd encourage their hearts with that truth. I pray if there would be a lost person here today that you would convict them that if Jesus were to come today, they would not be ready. Draw them, Lord, by your spirit. Give them the faith to repent and believe on Christ. I pray in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.